it's good to see you guys. It's good to be with you, um, to see you in person again. Um, I have to admit, before I begin, I have to admit that preaching to, to people wearing a mask is even harder to preaching at home just looking at a camera. Uh, it's hard to kind of, I'm guessing as I speak, I try to guess what your expression is with your eyes. Was that a frown? Was that a smile? Was that like an amen in agreement? Or was that like, no, I don't agree with what she's saying. Um, so feel free to um, shout amen. I can hear you through your masks. Kind of like raise your eyebrows if you, if you agree with what I'm saying or <laughs> just try to interact with me somehow. Um, but to be honest, when this week began, I had no idea what I was going to preach. I had no idea what I was going to say. I mean, what could I possibly say in the current times that we are living in? What could I possibly say? Or better yet, what should I say in the current times that we are living in? Let's just, I, I, some people say that, that there's, two, there's two opinions. Some people say that the world is going from bad to worse. Other people say that it's always been bad. We just have more technology to expose it all. Let's just look at the past two months. We were hit with this global pandemic, COVID-19, that came in. And because of it, thousands of lives were affected. People died in, in so many places. And maybe not of COVID-19, but the diseases that already made so many people's health vulnerable only made them more vulnerable. And if people didn't die of the, of the disease itself, surely many will die of the cure. Because as is usual in our world that we live in, the poor will always suffer the most. And so while the rich, myself included, can quarantine in our comfortable houses, so many people have been left without a job. So many people have no support network. And, and in places like India and Brazil and so many countries in Latin America and in Africa, people have lost the ability to make those $2 a day that put food on the table for themselves and their families. And then we went from worldwide, or, or at least um, 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 an attempt to confinement, to all of a sudden worldwide manifestations. Cities all over the world erupted into protests, crying out against the flawed nature of humanity. And so in this context, I asked myself, well, what could I possibly say? What am I supposed to preach when I look around me and I'm confronted with the racism with the injustice, with the inequalities that are all too prevalent in our world today. And I found myself asking a question. What would Jesus do? I don't know if you remember, um, when I was younger, we used to have these bracelets, WWJD bracelets. Who, who used to wear, who had one? Very few of us, but some of us had. Some, some of us made them at home. Other times you, can, you could buy them, but we had WJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? And maybe they're not so trendy now. Maybe we don't, we don't wear them as much now. But that, that phrase always stuck in my heart forever. What would Jesus do? And as I thought about my message, I not only asked myself, what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus say? In fact, what did Jesus say? 
Because I am of the opinion that ever since sin entered the world, history shows us the tendencies of the human heart. Tendencies that are unfortunately not towards love and generosity and equality, but tendencies that lead to dissensions. Tendencies towards selfish ambition. Tendencies towards discrimination and racism and murder and jealousy. History shows us. That is the tendency of the sinful nature of the human heart. And so when Jesus is born into the world, when the Son of God comes into the world, he doesn't come into an era and an environment of peace and justice and freedom. Jesus comes into a political and a social context that was simply horrific. Violence was rampant. The Jews were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. There was inequality ever. The, the gap between the haves and the have-nots was huge. Human rights was not even a thing. He came into an environment where it was a patriarchal, male-dominated society where so often women were disrespected, disregarded, and hurt. And let's not even get to, to what people did to children and the kinds of atrocities that were carried out against children. And so the question is, what did Jesus say in this environment where people were desperate for a savior, especially the Jews who lived in this oppression, the Jews who were being abused and exploited, they were waiting for a savior. They were desperate for hope, so much so that they had a very clear idea of what that savior would look like, the Messiah. The Messiah would be born in the line of David, and he would establish a kingdom that would set them free from Roman oppression, from the political and social oppression that they lived in, that they suffered. He would set them free from the persecution that they experienced. He would lead the people in a revolution against an authoritative and abusive power, finally bringing peace. And I mean, this is not something they made up. The Jews weren't just imagining this, this made-up figure that would come. The Jews were basing their expectation on the word of God, on prophecies, prophecies that were written in the book of Isaiah, in the Psalms, in the book of Amos and Daniel. There was no going wrong. The Messiah would come, and he would establish a kingdom that would set them free. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God is speaking to King David, the most amazing king that ever lived. He's speaking to King David, and he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lay, lie down with your fathers, when you're, when you're gone, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Later on in that scripture, it says, I will establish his kingdom forever. See, many times I don't think we are that different from these Jews. We read the word of God and we are so convinced with our ideas and our expectations that we quickly draw our own conclusions. Now the problem with that is that our ideas and the conclusion that we draw from our ideas are the underlying foundations underneath our actions. Everything we do is because we believe in something. And so the issue is, if our ideas are not aligned completely with the word of God, if our ideas are incorrect, then the conclusions we draw will be incorrect. And so the actions and everything that follows will not be aligned with who God is and who he wants us to be. And so Jesus enters the picture. 
And he is the Messiah. He is the one that fulfills all of the prophecies. God was establishing a kingdom through Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus lived to preach the gospel. Gospel just means good news. Jesus lived to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That was his message. That was his purpose. That was his motivation. Jesus used his voice. He used his influence. He used his platform to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. It says in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, now after that John was put in prison. It's talking about John the Baptist, the prophet who came right before Jesus and he, he would preach. It says in the book of John that he would preach to people saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And it says here in our verse that when he was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, Then Jesus went up about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. At one point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was, was speaking with some people, and he was ministering in this, in this one place, and the people didn't want him to go. And so they were trying to convince Jesus to stay, and Jesus responds to them. In, in Luke chapter 4, he says, I, I have to go. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent to preach the kingdom of God. Now we need to understand that the life of Jesus before the cross is extremely important for our spiritual maturity and to understanding who God is and what his plan is for the world. Jesus lived to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And this is where it's important for us to start challenging our concepts. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask us to do that today, to take a step back, go back to our foundations, go back to the ideas that we have and the conclusions that we've drawn, and really challenge ourselves aligning those, aligning our foundation with the word of God. And as we start doing that today, let's challenge ourselves by asking the question, well, what is the kingdom of God? If Jesus said, for this purpose I have come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, he hadn't even died on the cross yet, and he's preaching this message of the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, what is the kingdom of God? And the truth is that in our context today, we don't hear so many messages. We don't hear so many preachers and churches preach about the good news of the kingdom of God. The gospel is understood or the good news is understood at the cross, right? We understand that the good news is telling everybody that, that if you repent and you believe, you will be saved and one day you will go to heaven. And while that is correct, while that is beautiful, while that is so important and absolutely worth telling every single person you know, while that is good news, it is incomplete. So if I was to ask you, what is the kingdom of God, what would you answer? And perhaps it's a hard question for us to answer today because as far as I know, none of us have ever lived in a kingdom, right? We live in republics and parliamentary democracies. Maybe some of you at home or some of you here who've lived in the UK, you're more acquainted with what a king and a queen is, but even then, it's a constitutional monarchy, so it's not quite what we're talking about here. But we live in a context where the rules and the regulations are set by governments of body, where we, or bodies of government, 
where we elect our leaders and we vote them out when we don't like them. And yet the Bible is describing a completely different paradigm. It says in Psalm 47, verse 6 through 7, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. And as I was studying for this message, I came across an exposition by uh, Pastor Matt Chandler, and he described the kingdom of God in such a, such a good way that I'm going to borrow on his words right now in an attempt to explain what is the kingdom of God. And he uses alliteration to, to, to explain this, and he says three words, right? I'm going to summarize the kingdom of God into three words, dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. So firstly, dwelling, we can summarize, he says we can summarize the story of the Bible from beginning to end with three words, God with us. God with us in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says that God would walk and he would speak with Adam and Eve. And then God with us in the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle but God's presence dwelling with us? And then what is, it? what is it but God with us when Jesus, the son of the living God, comes in human form, Emmanuel, God with us. And then at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes to abide in us, God with us. And then in Revelation chapter 7, when there comes a new heaven and a new earth, what is that but God with us? The story of the Bible is a story of a God who wants to dwell, who wants to be with us. But we know that sin entered the world. Sin entered our hearts and it fractured our ability to be in his presence. It created a distance between us and God. There was a break with a governing rule and God in his authority exercised judgment. And then we get to the second D. Because the Bible says that we, when, we, when we are saved by grace and through faith, we come back into the dominion of God, which was his plan all along. We enter into his kingdom, we submit to his authority, and we start living out our unique calling to do kingdom work. Again, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. God says to Adam and Eve, now go multiply and, and, and fill the earth and subdue it. And then in the tabernacle, God says, I'm choosing you to be a holy nation. And I'm giving you this law so that as you, as you follow the law, you may demonstrate, you may show my wisdom, my power, and my glory to the nations around you. And then when Jesus comes and he lives and he walks with us and he ministers and he dies and he resurrects right before he ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples, now go. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do what I have commanded. Now go and bring kingdom principles wherever you go. Go and bring light to darkness. Go and bring order to chaos. And lastly, we understand that we are not just subjects of this kingdom, but the Bible says that we are adopted as sons and daughters of the king, that we are co-heirs with Christ. In fact, the Bible talks about 
a day in the future where we will co-rule, where we will reign alongside Jesus Christ forever. Understanding the kingdom as something that is eternal. It has this dynastic character to it. The kingdom of God that is forever and ever. And so we are invited to dwell in the presence of God. And we are co-heirs with Christ, reigning and dwelling in his dominion forever and ever and ever. And as we start to understand this eternal nature of the kingdom of God, we can say like Paul, well, what could this world possibly have to offer me? Everything this world has to offer me, it is temporary and it pales in comparison with the kingdom of God. And I feel like all too often we preach a message of believing in Jesus, being saved, and waiting for heaven to happen. And we push the kingdom of God to something that is merely in the future. When in Luke chapter 17, we read that the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, well, Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus looks at them and he replies and he says, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And this is, what, this is what Pedro preached about not too long ago. The kingdom that is now, that is here, and it's not yet. God is restoring people to himself as, as they submit to his authority, as they choose to enter his reign and his kingdom. And although he has power, although he has authority over all things, not all things have yet submitted to his rule. But one day we read in Philippians chapter 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and his kingdom will be fully consummated. That is why. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. Because for everyone that believes, eternity begins here and it begins now. As we are able to enter through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are able to enter into his presence. And we are commissioned to do kingdom work. We are commissioned to step into our calling and do the works for which we have been created. We not only get to see his kingdom come, but we get to be part of his kingdom. Well, this was not exactly what the Jews had in mind when they thought of a Messiah. I mean, the Jews were dealing with oppression. The Jews were being abused. They were being disrespected. They were being discriminated against. They were victims of all kinds of abuse and exploitation. They were ready for a revolution. They were ready for a king to set them free. They were ready for a king that would bring justice to their circumstance here and now. I mean, that's what the book of Amos said. Let justice roll on like a river. They were ready for a king that would understand their suffering and set them free. And so one day, Jesus, he gets up on this mountain in Matthew chapter 5. And I, I kind of see it like the movies, you know, like Braveheart type of situation where people are ready to, to go into battle and the leader gets up and he's about to give the most incredible speech, the most inspirational speech where after that, Rome does not stand a chance. People will be so passionate and so rallied up. 
that they are ready to do anything, to go anywhere. Jesus was about, this is what they thought, Jesus is about to criminalize their oppressors. Jesus is about to point out the atrocities. Jesus is about to rally a cry against the injustice that they suffered. And next thing, next thing Jesus opens his mouth and he starts going a little bit off script. And I can only imagine their confusion when they are ready for Jesus to incite a revolution. And Jesus starts saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I can see his disciples being like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, weren't, we, weren't you just going to lay down the plan for the revolution? <laughs> How does peace fit into that? And then, and then Jesus, Jesus goes on and he says things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wait, 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 God, wait, Jesus, the Messiah. I know you're the Messiah that we've been waiting for, but you mean like I should love the Romans? I should love those that have been oppressing my people? I should love the Greeks, the Greeks who not long ago banned the practice of Judaism, and they set into motion a genocide of my people, you're saying that I should love them and I should pray for them? This was not the speech that they were expecting from the Messiah. And next thing Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Jesus was revealing a kingdom like no other. Jesus was talking about a kingdom that had no comparison to anything anybody had ever known in this world. Imagine now. Imagine their disappointment when their leader, the leader that would bring a revolution, the leader that would save them from all the injustice they were suffering, imagine their disappointment when Jesus is killed on a cross. I mean, till the last minute, till the last minute, Peter held on to some hope that Jesus would get political, that Jesus would hop onto his social media and incite action and mobilize people into a revolution. Peter had some hope that at some point, Jesus was going to grab his sword and he was going to fight. The Bible says that, that at one point in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's just having a casual conversation with them. And he says, who do people say I am? And the disciples answer and they say, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say this, some say that. And, and then Peter boldly says, when Jesus says, no, okay, but, but who do you say I am? And the Bible says that Peter boldly proclaims, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Wow. Peter has this moment of revelation. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then we read a few verses later. As Jesus is again talking to his disciples, he's explaining Listen, guys, I'm going to have to go into Jerusalem, and I'm going to have to suffer, and I'm even, I'm going to be killed. And the Bible says that Peter takes Jesus to the side, and he rebukes him, and he says, no, Jesus, this will never happen to you. And even 
when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the very last moment, Peter takes out his sword. He's ready to fight. You see, while Peter believed Jesus to be the Messiah, his belief was still conditioned to his own expectation of what the Messiah should look like and what the Messiah should act like. I say that again. While Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah, his belief was still conditioned to his own expectation, to his own interpretation, to his own agenda of what the Messiah should look like and what the Messiah should act like. See, the message of Jesus is just as revolutionary today as it was in that time. Churches all over the world today, we declare that Jesus is our king, but we misunderstand his message, and we so often misunderstand his kingdom altogether. We're so busy with our own agenda. We say that we want to advance the kingdom, but we fail to obey the very basic principles of the kingdom of God that Jesus explained. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Wait, 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 Jesus, that's, that's just confusing. Wait, you're saying that I should pray for racists? That I should love racists? That I should love people who discriminate my brothers and my sisters based on the color of their skin, who perpetuate violence, who limit the opportunities to education and to employment and to all kinds of dreams and ambitions? I should, I should pray for an officer who would put his knee on another man's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds till he is begging for his mom and he dies unjustly. You're saying that I should pray for that officer? That I should love him? Wait, wait, Jesus, that, that's, not, that's not what I expected you to say. Wait, wait, Jesus, you're, you're, saying that, you're saying that I should love and pray for bad presidents who are not fit to lead in any way, shape, or form that 90% of the times they open their mouth to speak. It's just nonsense. You're saying that, that I should pray for them? That I should love on them? Wait, that, that just... That just doesn't make sense. And Jesus says, yes. And in fact, you should submit to their authority. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. It's what the Word of God says. I think that today we all have to admit that on some level, the message of Jesus is confusing, and it doesn't quite fit with what we think he should say. See, I just went on holiday with my, with my family this week. And uh, the, weather, the weather wasn't the best, but um, on Thursday there was a moment of heat, and so we were all sitting by the pool, and there's five grandchildren right now. So they're all playing in the pool, and we're kind of chilling. And my dad, uh, in an attempt, I guess, to make everybody laugh, my mom's always the center of all the jokes. And so my dad goes to this freezing cold pool. He picks up some water. He sneaks over my mom, and he just pours it on her back. And everybody starts laughing, especially all the children start laughing. Um, and just as my mom is about to uh, express her indignation for what he has done, I jokingly just shout, Mom, just turn the other cheek. 
And before she can even say anything else, my sister jumps into her defense and she quotes Galatians 5 and she says, well, the Bible says not to provoke your, your, your brother or your sister into anger. And I thought that was funny, but it was so telling of how Christians live. It was so telling of our, of our common practice as Christians. All too often, we excuse ourselves from taking personal responsibility and obeying the principles of the kingdom of God by blaming the failure of others to obey those same principles. All too often, we excuse ourselves from taking personal responsibility and obeying the principles of the kingdom of God by blaming the failure of others to follow those same principles. I would turn the other cheek, but he provoked me into anger. <laughs> I would respect you, but your behavior does not deserve my respect. I would, I would forgive you, but you never apologized. I would submit to your authority, but your leadership is not, is not a servant leadership. <laughs> I would honor my mother and my father, but, but they haven't done a very good job at raising me in a godly way. And can I go a little further? <laughs> I would have compassion on George Floyd and his family, but he was a criminal and he had it coming. Or I would be gentle and loving and kind to my friends who are white, but, but they, haven't, they haven't bent their knee and recognized their white privilege yet. And so we condition our obedience of following the principles of the kingdom of God by shifting the blame at the failure of others and the failure of their Christianity. And what we end up with is a church that is not fully and truly submitted to the king. A church that does not seek first the kingdom of God. And as Christians living in the 21st century, we are not quite familiar with the role of a king. We're not used to submitting to a, to a leader that was not elected by its people. We call Jesus our king, but I think in reality we worship him and we follow him more like a president. <laughs> a president who has to govern according to the laws that we have voted for, according to the expectations that we have. We follow him, we worship him as a president that has to answer to us. But that's not how it works in a kingdom. In a kingdom, it is the personal will of the king that governs. Whatever the king says, whatever the king wills, that is the law. So forgiveness, forgiveness won't always make sense to me. But in this kingdom, if I am a part of this kingdom, I will forgive because my king asked me to. And waiting and being patient for my breakthrough, it won't always be easy and it won't always make sense. But I will do it by the grace of God when my king asked me to. Losing my life to find it will definitely be hard to accept, but I will do it because it is the principle in this beautiful kingdom of God of which I am a part of now and forever. 
Jesus is preaching a message about a kingdom that is not of this world. When Pilate, well, Jesus is arrested and, and he stands before Pilate and Pilate asks him, well, are you the king of the Jews? And he answers, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my guys would be out there fighting. My kingdom is not of this world. And as Christians, we have to take a step back. We have to go back and challenge our ideas and our conclusions that we have made about the word of God that is affecting the way that we live out our calling. Are we trying to conform Jesus and his kingdom to the expectation that we have? Are we following and obeying his message? Are we obeying the words that came out of his mouth? Or are we trying to take verses out of context to fit the, the idea that we have? And I think that, I think that many of us, that, that, that command to love your enemy is a hard one because we equate that somehow to conforming, to accepting our enemy's behavior. But that's not what Jesus is saying. At no point was Jesus accepting of sinful acts. But he says, despite it, don't accept, don't conform. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I don't want the church to be a doormat. But love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I'm going to ask the, the band to come up. And my prayer this morning is that we will leave this forum not only asking what would Jesus do. Because when we ask that question, we can, we can easily be led by our own imagination of what he would do. But we will also ask the question, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do when they called his mama whore? What did Jesus do when they whipped him unjustly? What did Jesus do when they accused him even though he was innocent? What did Jesus do when they wanted to crown him a king? The Bible says that, that at one point they wanted to make him a king by force and Jesus just kind of escaped into a, a lonely place because that was not his purpose at that time and in that moment. What did Jesus do when they put him on a cross and killed him? Not just what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? How did he use his voice? How did he use his platform? How did he use his influence in a context of social injustice and oppression and inequality and violence? My prayer is that we will be willing to come before him in humility and truly submit to his authority. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not our righteousness, his righteousness. Trusting that no matter how things look like, no matter what God asks of us, his will is good and it's perfect. Lastly, we look forward to a day when his kingdom will fully be established. As Jesus returns, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be in his presence forever as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. 
I don't know about you, but that fills me with excitement. That fills me with longing. That fills me with joy that my eternity with Jesus begins now. That I can experience his peace. That I can experience his love. That I can experience his presence. Even though it's so limited now. One day, I will be face to face with my king. And eternity begins now. My prayer is that we will be a church without its own agenda. We will be a church that no matter if they mock us, no matter if they call us names, no matter if they tell us how, how we don't do this right or how we don't do that right, no matter what the circumstances are, we take pride in obeying the King of Kings. That we will be fully submitted and that we will bring light to darkness that we will bring order into chaos. And so, as we worship now, I want to ask us to, to be real with Jesus. And to ask him, Jesus, remind me of your message. Show me where I have been following my own interpretation of what I think you should be like. Take everything away that is not from you and fill me with all that is of you. Jesus, I pray that you will, you will inhabit our hearts. God with us. Jesus, I pray that we will follow you for who you truly are and that we will be brave enough to follow a kingdom that is not of this world, that doesn't conform to the patterns of this world. God, we want to be filled with a love that is unconditional. We want to praise you and we want to worship you. We want to follow you. We want to pick up our cross regardless of what others are doing around us. We want to forgive even when there's no apology. We want to respect even when others don't deserve our respect. God, we want to honor even where honor is not due. Jesus, because the word says that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Isn't that incredible that, that Jesus didn't just die for me? Even though he sees me, he sees, he sees my, my good days and my bad days. He sees Gabby when, when she looks good on a Sunday morning, and he sees Gabby when she's impatient and rude and all sorts of evil, and yet he loves me. Not based on what I deserve, but he loves me, and he is faithful to me. And, and Jesus didn't just die for me. Jesus died for the murderer. Jesus died for the thief. Jesus died for the prostitute. Jesus died for the racist. Jesus died for the bad leader, the abusive leader. Jesus died for the oppressor. Jesus died for us sinners. Jesus, remind us of your love that knows no borders. Remind us of your love that knows no conditions, no prerequisites. And may we 
be channels of that same love. God, only by your grace, only by your strength will we be able to ever do that. Because humanly, it's not possible. It's not possible. Jesus, fill us with more of you. And let this church shine as your bride. Let us be a light in a world that is so full of darkness. In Jesus' name.